Hello, my darlings, and welcome to Monsters Fam. This is the horror podcast by women and queer people for women and queer people with a special focus on examining the idea of the monstrous feminine as it appears in media, pop culture, and everyday life. I'm Lil Theon, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mickey Smith, as well as our two new co-hosts, Daniel Sokoloff and Kat Lance. Unfortunately, Ophelia, our previous third co-host, needs to step back from the pod for the foreseeable future, but the good news is that Daniel and Kat have both guest hosted the show before, and they are terrific. On that note, we didn't previously get to do a formal new co-host introduction for the two of you. Is there anything you'd like to say to our audience, like perhaps summing yourself up in one sentence and or sharing a fun fact about yourselves? Let's start with you, Daniel. What would you care to say to our listeners? Sure. I'm Daniel. I'm an independent novelist and poet. Um, I self-publish my own books. Uh, I, you know, I have them listed over at uh, demonlandbooks.com. But, uh, you know, I have a lot of pets, um, you know. I have four guinea pigs, an iguana, and a bearded dragon, and I love them very much. And uh, I like to go for long walks at night, and that's about mm-hmm. it. Yeah, it's great. great. And yeah. uh, Daniel's very modest, so he didn't mention that he's also low-key. He's low-key, low-key on the side. Oh, yeah. I'm, like, lo- yeah. I'm very low-key about that, you know. People, yeah. t- people tend to feel a certain way about that, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, understandably. But, um, so, yeah, that's that's Daniel's deal. And, um how about you, Kat? Any one-sentence self-summations or fun facts you'd like to share? I write horror and about horror and read a lot of horror. I also mm-hmm. really like weird or dark lit fic mm-hmm. or anything that could be related to horror. Um, unrelated to horror, fun fact is that I know a lot about indie perfume. Mm. Ooh! Okay, what are you wearing? Um, right now I'm wearing one from a company called Alchemia called as dark things are meant to be loved because it felt fitting Ooh. for the episode. Yeah. yeah. Today I'm wearing, uh, Italian Kush by boy smell. Okay. That's cool. I smell, I smell like I'm smoking a fat joint in a tomato garden. Gross. <laughs> Gross. Fight me. You know oh what? God, I'll come I'll... through the border. I was literally just about to say fight me, but then you said it. So now I don't know what to do. So like... fight me double. Oh my God. <laughs> Daniel. Does anybody want to share their pronouns? I'm going to include it in the episode notes as I always do. But do you want to just start off by talking pronouns? I mean, I'm pretty boring. He, him, you know, no biggish. <laughs> and Kat. Uh, she, her. Mm-hmm. And Mickey. Do you want, like, the funny answer or, like, the real answer? Ooh, give me the funny answer. I'm curious. <laughs> um, royal we and, like, mm-hmm. nautical she. You know, like, what you would call the ship. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. And then the real answer is they, them. <laughs> so yeah. Why? I read a book with a character like that, though, where they a were. royal we? Well, they used feminine pronouns only when at sea. Wow, that is so cool. I'm gonna I'm gonna have to look at my bookshelf very carefully after this and find that book because it was awesome that I didn't realize that my little my silly little bit was actually gonna (laughs) my little hee hee was actually gonna (laughs) inspire that that's amazing yeah that exists I will find it please yes send it to me I'm so interested though I did just finish a book and I'm just about to read Daniel's first book so it's gonna have to get in line awesome 
Yeah, yeah, and that's that's really cool. See, the thing is, Mickey, for every, anyone that doesn't know, is very well read. So Mickey's so well read that at this point they can just intuit like books that they haven't even read and just pick up on things that are in books that they have not checked out. So that's my fan theory, at least. Um, I, I just walk into a library blindfolded and I I just yeah. get like the best books. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, and, yeah, <laughs> like, 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 like readings, but only with books. Like you can go up and be like, this happens. Not with Bibliomancy, but like a little different than what you're imagining. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So on that note, um, how is everyone doing today? How are you, Mickey, first of all? Um yesterday when I was working at the cafe, a lady told me that um my energies were vibrating and that my aura was cinnamon like. Ooh. So I'm good. Cool. Yeah. Damn, what a compliment. I love that. Spicy, yeah. 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 I mean, she she also asked, like, how many teaspoons of foam go into a cappuccino. So, like, there was, like, a little push and pull between us. A little bit of push and pull of, like, my um, my attention and, like, my willingness <laughs> to talk about this. But I accept the cinnamon. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That's It's such an interesting compliment. I love when people give like kind of off the beaten path compliments. Um, yeah. And it's kind of, that's kind of a great one. Um, and how about you, Kat? How are you doing? It's a Tuesday night and that means that tomorrow is about halfway through the work week. So that's yeah. pretty hey. exciting. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a busy recovering from end of month because my day job is accounting and that's rough. Ooh, ouch. <laughs> oh yeah yeah as somebody that's not good with numbers um i'm an on of what i'm in awe of you and um i really have high respect and don't know how you do it excel excel does the numbers for you <laughs> yeah, yeah i agree as someone who got through college without taking a single fucking math course after i failed statistics um and you know i i changed my major in, in shame um yeah no i i i i i, I bow to you as well yeah, I also got through college without a math class because I went to an open curriculum school. If anyone's wow. wondering how to do it, go to an open curriculum school and it's fantastic. <laughs> mm. Anyway, that brings us to you, Daniel. How have you been? I have been great. I've I've uh, had a ton of energy lately. I've been very productive. I've been writing um, at work, actually. Uh, I, you know, I had one of those moments where... Um, I lost faith in humanity, but that's, that's, you know, that, that doesn't make much sense because I don't have much anyway. Um, I'm waiting for the roaches to inherit the earth, of course. But, so uh, you work customer service? No, uh, no, I, I work. Uh, wow. Oh. <laughs> that's awesome. No, I work in, I work in a, the fraud department of a bank, actually. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. That would do it. Yeah. Um, but no, this was my coworkers actually, and I really hope they never check this out because I'm about to tell a really sad story. But anyway, uh, I hear something. Oh, life finds a way. Oh, what is a fossil? You know, and I'm like, oh, hey, I can I can hang, you know. Mm -hmm. So I walk over and I say, hey, what's up? What are we talking about? You know, I, I think they're talking about, oh, did you know that birds had feathers? I mean, I mean dinosaurs had feathers. <laughs> I, I know, I know. Just throw. Some, I, it's it's been a long day. Anyway, um, I, I, you know, I, I'm sitting here thinking that they're talking about T Rex having feathers, you know, and I'm like ready to, you know, dish on that. And the one says, "Oh, Daniel, do you believe in dinosaurs?" And I'm do just you believe. Do I? I mean, do I? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I've heard that 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 sex thing isn't real, so I don't know. That's big if it's true, but dinosaurs? I don't know. Um. Anyway, I'm just like looking at them, and I'm like, huh. Um, I'm like, you know, I've seen the bones and, 
you know, all that, you know? I mean, we got fucking birds, you know? And then uh, the one says, I believe in aliens. And I just say, that's a different category. And I, I went back yeah. to my desk. I'm back to my desk. Oh, my So does, he, does this coworker oh. think that, like, the bones are fake? Like, paper This was, mache? like, three of them. They were all talking about them like they were, like, you know, yetis or something. Which yetis like probably exist, you know? Yeah. No, they're just... No, no, they're just dumb. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, they're just dumb. They're not even like the fucking rabbis from my yeshiva that told me flat out that, you know, the, the, the Goyim, you know, the non-Jews, they, they, you know, they, they plant the dinosaur bones to make us not believe in God or whatever. They are just dumb. They're just like, I don't know. I don't think dinosaurs are real, man. You know, I'm just thinking about it. I don't think they're real. You know, it's like. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe maybe they think they're like dragon bones or something. It could be like ooh. mythical creature. <laughs> I, I would at least respect that. I mean, the logic yeah. there is that the logic there is that like medieval poetry babbles about dragons. Therefore, dragons must have existed. And yeah. er, there were dinosaurs. And I just wonder if in 500 years we'll think Spider-Man's real because New York is real. But, you know, <laughs> it's it, it's pretty cool. It's pretty, you know, it's pretty great. I mean, I, I'm very happy about all these developments personally. This is our Valentine's episode, so we're going to be talking about um, what naturally goes along with the horror genre, which is romance. When you think horror, you think romance, at least if you're me. So we're going to be covering that. We're going to be talking about um, love, eroticism, all that fun stuff as it pertains to the horror genre, um, queer stuff, and um, the genre's attitude towards sexuality and getting in, getting into some of the origins of Valentine's Day and uh, also, you know, horror ships and horror couples. I'm curious if anybody has some. That, that might be a good place to start because it's kind of a fun one. I'm curious. I speak as somebody who um, likes to ship characters that should really probably not be shipped. Uh, like, I'm somebody that ships Clarice and Hannibal come at me it's not it's, a, it's very problematic but like they have really good chemistry i like the idea i like the idea of it what can i say so you know i'm something that likes to ship um kind of problematic couples weird couples couples that you wouldn't necessarily think should be um otp and i'm curious about you all and if you've ever watched or read a piece of horror and been like, I really ship these two characters, especially if it's like the villain and the protagonist. But if it's not that, that's also fine. If it's like the two protagonists or the two villains or anything else, I'm just curious. So maybe we'll go around. Let's start with Kat. I'm going to pick on you first. Do you have anything that fits that bill or no? I mean, you said Hannibal, but you didn't bring up Hannibal and Will Graham from the TV oh. show because their chemistry was insane. They even right. like, kind of fucked on screen a little bit yeah that was i mean i was on tumblr for those days and that was the that was the couple so they deserve a shout out for sure was there any like wild tumblr stuff about the two that you remember specifically look (laughs) when i think about tumblr in the hannibal days the only thing in my brain is swiggity swag it's the nightmare stag so <laughs> that's about all I got for you. It was everywhere. Pretty sure I yeah. had it on a shirt. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, that's Tumblr for you. This was like ten years ago. Now that's really weird to say. Yeah. Um, Crazy man. Um, Tumblr is so fun in that it really takes ships to a whole new level and just runs wild with them. Fun is an interesting word for it, for sure. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's um it's a it's an experience. I'm somebody that's really not I'm not on Tumblr, I'm not engaged with it, but I like to watch YouTube videos about Tumblr wildness and I'm fascinated with the, the ecosystem of Tumblr and the way that it um handles any kind of shippable relationship, which is to go very hard. Like I respect I respect that. It. It's like it's like the, it's like people make it their job almost like it's not like this is just a little ship and i was like no this is like a full-time aspect of my personality and i'm gonna really dedicate a lot <laughs> see i have a lot um did <laughs> does skeletor count as a horror character he's a skeleton i mean sure yeah, i say yeah why not yeah i mean yeah i mean if you think that skeletor and he-man don't have something going on i mean i i you know i, I we're gonna have to have a talk man you know <laughs> I mean, you know, yes. I mean, Be Beast Man doesn't do it for Skeletor. Everyone knows that he he's got Beast Man AIDS, you know. Um, but <laughs> I also think that Mike Myers about? and his sister have going on. That's why he's always coming after her. It never ends with those two, you know. Fucking mm -hmm. just get it over with, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's true. God, you said Mike Myers, and I initially went to the former SNL cast. <laughs> I was like, where is this gonna go? Wait, that's not uh, who's under the mask? Or, you never see his face. Oh, yeah, just, yeah, 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 face. Yeah, yeah, come on, man, keep up. I don't remember what movie they revealed that, but man, what a reveal it was. It Everybody was asked, that was amazing. Um, okay, and then how about you, Mickey? Any weird ships, problematic ships, horror ships, whatever? <laughs> problematic <laughs> i'm not looking for a call-out post um <clears throat> so i i used to ship a lot more as a teenager uh mm -hmm. and now as an adult like i've really gone away from like shipping or reading fan fiction or mm -hmm. looking at fan art like i just i get like uh I don't know, I see it and I get all blushy and I'm like, I can't do this, actually. <laughs> like, this is embarrassing <laughs> that I'm blushing alone in front of my own computer. This is far too much. And so I don't ship. And when I saw this on our little list of topics, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to get so embarrassed. So I'm like blushing right now just thinking about it. My cheeks are hot. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. I will. <laughs> we talked about an issue with Vampire in our previous episodes. I'm not going to dive into it again, although I am tempted. But I will also say that I pretty much shipped Louie with like every character. <laughs> um, you know, Armand, um, Lestat. There's so many different people to ship Louie with, and it's great. You know, it sounds fun, but I used to do that too. But here's the here's the sad thing about Louie. Like all those fucking vampires are also majestic and like yeah. more epic in their their misery and they know they could get louis which makes them not want louis yeah <laughs> so no true. hanging fruit like you know gabrielle has thought about it and she's like yeah. I, I don't i don't want to yeah louis just you know he's our sad sack emo boy and then everybody else is having the time of their lives and then there's just him so it's honestly really relatable because it's like it's like being at a party and you're like the one person that doesn't want to yeah. be at that party and you're just like he, he, he had the so uh, lilith have you read tale of the body thief no i have not oh that's book four um so lestat becomes human uh through reasons and wow he's that's he's immediately he's immediately immediately like oh fuck i'm mortal again oh no why did i watch this so he goes yeah. to louis and he, he's like listen listen you gotta help me all right like you know stop cut the shit you know fucking bite me i gotta go after this bastard that stole my body and stuff he's like lestat you won like you're human 
oh my god i can't i'm so happy for you and that's that's yeah that's his interaction with louis he's no help he's completely pathetic you know it's, it's the funniest thing he's just he's like living in squalor and new orleans just Blah, woe is me. Oh, Lestat, you've gained your humanity again. Blah, you know. That's such a perfect Louis impression. That's exactly what I imagine. No, no, no. He probably sounds like really sexy, but it gets old because all he does is cry. Yeah, no, he's, uh, yeah. He's <laughs> Brad Pitt! <laughs> if he's crying all the time, he's got to have like a hoarse voice and be, you know, not in the best speaking, speaking time or shape. I will say. Um, I think Clarice and Hannibal are a great pair. You know, opposites attract people that are different sides of the same coin. You know, it makes sense to me. And uh, I think, you know, in real life, would it work? No. But, you know, in, in fiction, that's the great thing about fiction is you could just have whatever you want. You can ship whoever you want and, you know, all everything goes. So those are my thoughts. Not really, you know, super sophisticated, but there you have them. Um, so anyway. Interesting. You know, about Hannibal and Clarice, because, like, they're very obsessed with each other throughout the whole story. Yes. And Hannibal yeah. even says, they'll think we're in love. Mm, yeah, <laughs> and I got my Such a great line. Uh, yeah, my teenage seriously. heart soared when I heard that. I was like, yes, this gives validity to my theory. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's really, it's an interesting dynamic that they have. I think also something that comes up in horror a lot is that, that idea of obsession. Where like you see it with like Mike Myers and what's her face? <laughs> so sorry, but you see Laurie Strode. Did you mean Laurie Strode? I thought it was Laurie, and then I second guessed myself. But um, you see it with them too. You see it with a lot of these um horror movies where it's like a reoccurring villain, Ghostface, and wow, I can't remember any of the female heroines. Sydney Prescott. Yeah, yep. But Ghostface Hi. is different every time, so a little bit yeah. of a different obsession. Yeah, Ghostface it's, is not a guy. It's just a it's a costume. It's you know. It's a, you know, Ghostface was the friends we made along the way. Ghostface is whoever you That's want to right. be. That's right. Uh, yeah. So the thing is, yeah, like those sorts of things are interesting to me where obsession comes up a lot. I'm very intrigued by the idea of obsession in orcs of fiction anyway. You know, I love Sweeney Todd and I believe Stephen Sondheim has said that 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 kind of the heart of that show is obsession. Everybody's obsessed with one mm. another. And to me, I just kind of love that. I love stories where people are obsessed with certain things. Maybe it's because I quite literally have obsessive compulsive disorder. So I get obsessed with things very easily, very readily, and like with my full heart and soul. So it's just kind of, it connects with me in that regard. But I don't know, I sort of love that. And I love that for the horror genre because I do think obsession is a really interesting, like, kind of motivation for doing crazy things, doing heinous things, um, especially like an obsessive love rather than an obsessive hate. Like mm -hmm. that's, I think, a motivator within the horror genre. So yeah, I, I'm all for that. Big fan of it. Um, I'm curious if any of you have any thoughts on like love or romance um, or sexuality, eroticism, et cetera, that comes up in horror and kind of like your thoughts on like, romantic horror gothic romance and like um erotic horror erotic horror is one of those genres that i have really not read enough of but i'm very curious about because i think again i think there's something interesting there like with the obsession thing where i feel like a lot of horror is kind of people at their most vulnerable where they're showing a side of themselves that they usually would not show where they're scared where they're and this is true of the audience, too, where they are allowing themselves to tap into their inner fears and things that 
they normally would kind of try to conceal um, or at least kind of control. And they're kind of letting those things just just be totally out there. And they're very vulnerable in that regard where it's like, yes, I'm afraid right now. I'm screaming and running right now. I'm in the audience, you know, covering my eyes right now, whatever. So it's this very kind of primal emotion that the horror genre taps into. And I think what's interesting about like erotic horror or like eroticism that comes up in horror or horror adjacent works is that um, it's similar where eroticism, like the idea of it, you know, again, it's people where they're kind of, again, at their most vulnerable, exposing something that they usually would not show, something that they would try to conceal, you know, their like uh, arousal, turn-ons, whatever, their, you know, infatuation with somebody, things that they would keep on the down low ordinarily. And that's, you know, kind of then bubbling up to the surface alongside those other emotions that are very primal, like fear. And I think that's really interesting, and I kind of love the idea of that, but I have not... I haven't read or watched enough of it. I don't know. When I think of it, like, the first thing that comes to my mind is, like, Eyes Wide Shut, which I wouldn't necessarily characterize as horror, but I would call it, like, horror Jason at least because it's um, a very sinister movie. And it's also a very sexual movie, obviously. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a gothic at the very least, I mean. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I you know. That's how I it. And it's right. very... It's really, like, um, just lays it all out in terms of sex, sexuality, weird sexual hang-ups, and then also strangeness, creepiness, gothic stuff, weird imagery, scary imagery, kind of nightmarish things. And I sort of, I think the combination is really um, kind of exciting and interesting, and I think they go together very nicely. So I think erotic horror is a really curious aspect of the genre and how it can be interpreted and that's those are my messy thoughts but anyway let's see who should i pick on to kind of ask what they think about this um do any let me just start with do any of the three of you would any of you guys classify yourselves as like readers or viewers of erotic horror are you like familiar with the genre <laughs> well that was a I mean, double that was a double i know something double. about it i mean yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right yeah 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 uh <laughs> well, I I know something about what you know, but I'm not going to say anything. Um, but <laughs> the thing is, yeah, it's so it's interesting because it's even like to kind of I think admit that that somebody's a, a purveyor of like an enjoyer of it, a writer of it, whatever. There's also kind of that sort of taboo to kind of overcome of like admitting, um, like yeah, this is cool. I mean, I don't think it has to be like a sexual thing, but I think that a lot of people would interpret it that as such. Like if you write erotic horror, you are you know, doing so, or if you consume erotic horror, you're doing so for, like, sexual purposes, which I don't necessarily think is true. But I think that there's still that taboo where we kind of assume that, so we don't necessarily want to admit it. But, like, you can just, you know, I feel like you can just enjoy it as somebody that likes good art and likes things that are provocative. So, um, yeah, go ahead. Thank you. Um, no, so there is an art to writing filthy things. Um <laughs> You know, word choice, like, you know, if you're writing a poem, you don't use the word sunset more than twice. You don't use, you know, you want to be very careful and precise. As you say, it is art and you are honing it. Um, but, you know, when I read something erotic, like I'm holding a book in my hand. Um, it's Georges Bataille's Story of the Eye. Um, oh. Almost. Oh, oh, cat, you've read it. <laughs> um, it is referenced heavily in Mavefly by C.J. Lead, so I desperately want to read it. And I know... Some salacious details about it. 
It's 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 like God, how the corpse's blood is sad in the depths of sound. I mean, it's just. I mean, uh, French surrealism is something I was very obsessed with when I was a lot younger. But this book in particular, I just I've never given it away or gotten rid of it. Um, like, funny story. Um, one of my ex girlfriends, uh, we were friends for like a minute, and she was going to the mountains. She says, you know, Dan, give me a stack of books to read. And I, knowing that she's prissy and prude, and you know. Whatever, I, I put it on top and I'm like, make sure you read this. This is a really good one, you know. Um, <laughs> it's not pleased. So uh, here's the thing about this book. Um, uh, like, <laughs> I don't even know where to start with this book. So it, it's about this guy and this girl who she lives up the street from him and she's very innocent, but her name is Simone. Very sexy, very, very uh, Puritan name, I suppose. But, uh, you know, she has this thing where she likes to sit in 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 a on plates on saucers of milk. <laughs> um, well, and like they they do very interesting things. Like she'll be sitting on the toilet and he'll be cracking eggs under her. Um, wow. And things get like really really wild. I mean, yeah, um, the egg thing is um, heavily yeah. in Mayfly. Yeah. I'm just going to, like, read this. All she had left was her stockings and belt, and after I fingered her cunt a bit and kissed her on the mouth, she glided across the room to a large antique bridal wardrobe where she shut herself in after whispering a few words. She wanted wow. to jerk off in the wardrobe and was pleading to be left in peace. It's just very, like, lurid. And that's the read, <laughs> like, um, he, started, he describes orgies, he describes, there, there's a part where someone gets choked to death, and, um... Oh, wow. Yeah, they're with this, like, really fucked up weird guy, like, towards the end of the book, and he rips his eyeball out, and I don't think Simone does it. I think the other girl does it. She shoves his eye up her cunt, and, wow. like, Whoa, see, I was reading cool. it because I I was, like, um I was, like, a, you know, a character from a movie I'm going to talk about later during the podcast, or I was just chasing this high of, like, I want to read the most depraved, debauched, insane things I can get my hands on. And after yeah. I'd exhausted Lovecraft and Durleth and all those frauds, um you know... I was like, all right, fucking, you know, lay it on me, you know. And I found out about this, about George Bataille's story of the eye. And I was like, all right, you know, because the thing is, is like, yeah, I mean, like, I suppose you can read this with, you know, with with one hand down your pants. Right. I mean, sure. <laughs> but um, like. We don't read like action stories because we want to be jumping off buildings and fighting dragons <laughs> and so on. I mean, maybe we do, but. In practice, we're probably not going to do that. It's it's a fantasy at the end of the day. And um, if you can read, like, interesting, fascinating, beautifully, luridly written scenes of sexual debauchery and, I mean, things that'll just, you know, set your brain on fire. I mean, it's a different kind of, of satisfaction. And, mm. you know, this book is not just, like, sexy. It's... It's very violent and sad. I mean, there's a part where they're looking up at the stars and the main character realizes that, like, his youth is pretty much gone and it's not coming back. And, you know, Simone has this emotional damage that kind of takes over her towards the end of the book. And it's 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 a it's a book, you know, um, there's another you know, there's a movie we watched back when I was in college called The Life and Death of a Porno Gang. Um, I think I mentioned it on a different episode, but regardless, it's about a a group of artists that live in Serbia. They like to make little movies and put on little shows, but there's not much culture in Serbia. Serbia is a country that's been invaded a lot. Um, there, there are dead bodies buried everywhere. 
And like, you know, they put on this like canny, carny little sex show. And like, you know, it's not exactly sexy. It's more funny and pathetic. But people's reactions to it are what matter. They get reactions from people. And at a certain point, they get assaulted by people that just don't respect them because they're dirty and they they don't abide by the traditional standards that people expect them to abide by. And towards the end of it, the, the group breaks up and they all meet horrible fates. And it's really sad. It's, it's, a, it's a profound loss of innocence. And at the end of the day... Um, expressing your sexuality is it's a taboo because a lot of people aren't able to do it. A lot of people can't handle it and seeing other people do it, it triggers something defensive in their mind, I believe. But all that being said, all that being said, I mean, as a genre, it's very neglected. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a lot of the stuff I read when I was a lot younger were these like Christine Fihan vampire novels that, you know, Mm. I mean, yeah, you know, well, I'd rather really... not talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> it's really interesting. I think the, the excerpt and the things you're telling us about that particular story is like, wow, I was not prepared. <laughs> but that's a good, that's a really good example of like full on gothic horror, mm -hmm. like sex stuff. <laughs> and it's interesting too because it reminds me of like the fact that I think one of the reasons why eroticism goes well with horror is because there is um, an element of horror in a lot of people's turn-ons and kinks. So if you're into like BDSM, there's, mm. you know, kind of that um, sadism aspect that comes up and mm. you know, the sort of a lot of the sort of kind of dark stuff and acting out maybe like dark scenarios, things that you would see in horror content. So it's not that far removed from it. And so in that regard, they go together kind of naturally and they complement each other well because it's not it's not so separate. There's like a lot of there's overlap in that way. And so it kind of it makes sense as a pairing more than more than you would maybe think when you kind of put it in that perspective, which I think is also, you know, it's just interesting. I'm curious also if anyone has like read um Desaud. Like is is there any like Desaud stands among us? Oh, I've read Desaud. I am a fan of Desaud. Yeah, yeah. Not I just figured... not just not just because he wrote porn, but because I mean, he he just went to jail constantly for just you know stepping on crosses. <laughs> like he he once paid a prostitute to step on a cross just to get arrested. Like, wow, yeah, that's he was badass in a lot of ways. <laughs> he, he's like Marilyn Manson without the abuse and hypocrisy. Yeah, yeah, isn't that damn? That's a great description. <laughs> I love it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, what about uh, who should I go to next? Cat, have you read Desaad? I have not. I wanted to when I was definitely too young to have done so. So it's probably for the yeah. best that I didn't get around to it. Yeah, I, mean, I read. I, yeah, I've read him when I was fourteen. So you know, oh, like, man, we've all been there. We've all been there. <laughs> Yeah, you're just a little too curious, and you're like, I could go pick that up. That'd be really edgy of me. I had never read a don't. <laughs> Yeah, I never read a book where like he's just describing like he calls the men that are standing around waiting for their their turn to fuck the girls. He calls them fuckers. Like, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but that's nice, Cat, that you you know got to preserve your innocence. <laughs> I didn't um... say I preserved my innocence. I just didn't read the thought. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. let's be clear here <laughs> yeah that makes sense um how about you mickey 
Um, I haven't read his books, but I have read his wiki page. <laughs> if that is anything, <laughs> um, just be, uh, like I saw that a local theater uh, on Commercial Drive was putting on uh, 120 Days of Sodom. The film. what? Yeah, uh, as like a midnight viewing. Ooh. Oh, oh, oh! You mean the movie? I was like, I was, I was about to make a funny joke about. Oh, so wait, so they, you know, they abducted a bunch of girls and were just you know... <laughs> no the film. Uh, right, right. Yeah, it's like it's like an art house theater. It's really really right. Cool. Um, they do burlesque shows and drag shows there too. It's it's a great place to go. But I was like, oh, I think I heard about that when I was younger, and I was looking at lists of like the most fucked up horror movies ever to exist. And you know, there's uh, like Cannibal Holocaust. Um, uh, 120 Days of Sodom, uh, a Serbian film, things like that. And I didn't watch them because I'm like, I'll get too scared, but I can read the plot synopsis. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, so I, I would do a lot of that. And uh, I haven't read Desaad, Desaad, uh, but Desaad. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's very interesting that we have a whole genre of sadism because of him. Or is it sadism? Yeah. I've always heard sadism, so that's why I thought it was to say. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's confusing because it is. It's, it's French. It's it's French. They pronounce everything wrong. By the way, Mickey, that's um, true. I, I didn't, I didn't want to cut you off at all. Um, um, but yeah, a Serbian film actually. It's funny. I believe it. It was a riff on the life and death of a porno gang. Highly recommend you check really? it out. I think you'll really. I think it'll really resonate with you. You know, it's mm. not like Antichrist or anything. I I wouldn't recommend <laughs> something like that. You know. <laughs> Wait, are you recommending the porno gang or the Serbian film? No, Serbian film sucks. No, uh, The Life and Death of a Porno Gang. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Solid. So I'm like, ah, I don't know if I want to watch a Serbian film. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's not. Sounds... It's not good. It's not. I mean, it. okay. It, the Life and Death of a Porno Gang is a Serbian film, but it is not a Serbian <laughs> film. Right. It's yeah. not the a Serbian film. <laughs> yes. Yes. Very well put. <laughs> but uh, I did read a little bit about the history of Dasad. Um back when the uh the Rio was putting out that movie and I was pretty shocked they made a film of that but like of course they did it's horror of course they did it's mm -hmm. Desaad and uh I read that the interesting fact that um 120 Days of Sodom was actually Desaad's one of his last works that he produced in jail Mm -hmm. And uh, he was just writing it down on these pieces of paper and like stuffing them in the walls of his uh, of his prison cell. And that's how they were discovered uh, after something happened to the prison and either burned down or it was ransacked. Something awful happened and it was no longer being occupied. And so yeah. um, it was after the storming of the Bastille. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and it's incomplete, but uh, people have attempted to put it together sew it together the notes and everything and i think of that history is very interesting um and like personally when i when i was looking into this i was thinking like man i don't love mixing my erotic uh like eroticism with horror but mm -hmm. there's so many ways that like they are intertwined and they kind of have to be intertwined like what you were saying earlier about vulnerability because to be in the most vulnerable act is to uh receive the most damage or the mm -hmm. possibility of the most damage mm -hmm. and also just like the amount of juxtap juxtaposition between an erotic scene in a film and then 
a horrific like slashing or killing that happens either during or like right after it. Um, and it's, it's very interesting in that way. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's like a lot of analyses about slasher films and like how they're very sexually charged, even going as far as to say like the slasher's knife is uh, like mm-hmm. supposed to be phallic in nature. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's, it's very, it's a unique take. I'm not entirely sure how to delve far into that just because that's not something I look for a lot in my horror. But um, another interesting fact I learned is that a lot of the big greats uh, when it comes to directing horror films also directed a lot of pornography before they got into directing horror. Edward? There was like a whole list. I just know that Edward D. Jr., he, you know, in in addition to Plan 9 from Outer Space, he directed a lot of porn, so. Wow, interesting. I did not know this. This is is news to me, but I'm delighted to learn about it. They're pretty pretty funny. Wes Craven. Oh. He directed pornography? Yeah, a porn called The Fireworks Woman. Ooh. It's uh, it's written, edited, and directed by Wes Craven under the name <laughs> Abe Snake. Which is oh, I did know this. This was in yeah. the Scream movie, the yes. most recent one. That is very fun. You know what? He's got to eat. You know that is that is that is yeah. admirable. Yeah, um, That's Abel Ferrara was a director that also did porn. He did. Uh, I don't know any of these films, but Miss Forty Five, King of New York, mm-hmm. Driller Killer, Bad Lieutenant. He did a porn called Nine Lives of a, of a Wet Pussycat. <laughs> so that's mm. cool. Wow. Intriguing. Um, yes. Wash West, Westmoreland. Uh, David. This is just going to be me, me lot, like butch, butchering a lot of names. Mm-hmm. I just realized. Um, Doris Wishman. Gene mm. Rowland. Yeah. So like there has been a lot of inter between this and i was also reading that a lot of like early slasher and exploitation films the directors of those films would work with pornographic directors and they would kind of like boost each other up when it came to filming and um making sure that each of them had enough money to do their shoots sharing sets sometimes even um and so i think that from the birthplace of horror films pornography and eroticism and sex has always had its place mm-hmm. yeah yeah i i totally agree with that that's really interesting i did not know about those directors doing uh having directed porn and that i think it, another connective thread there is that both horror and pornographic works are often looked down upon um, and yes. kind of sneered at. And so I think that makes sense in, in a lot of ways that there is overlap between directors of porn and directors of horror because, like, yeah, they're both stigmatized genres that a lot of people want nothing to do with. And so it, it, there's kind of a kind of a perfect connection there. And um, I also think, going back to the obsession thing, it occurred to me also that, like, it's interesting thinking of, like, how women are portrayed in horror and the role that they tend to take on and kind of how that also overlaps with um, erotic genres, uh, like pornographic or otherwise, where, like, you know, to be the object of obsession 
speaking of of obsession, you know, whether it's a killer's fixation on killing them or whether it's uh, a man's fixation on fucking them, like to be that object of obsession kind of comes up a lot in both both genres. And then also the scary, like dominating, domineering, like monstrous female figure can come up in like kinky works. It can come up obviously in horror. And so there's that overlap. The Monsters Feminine, I think, presents itself in both genres in differing ways, but some with some overlap there, too. So there is a lot of different um, connective tissue. And I'm kind of uh, I'm kind of fascinated by that. But anyway, did either Kat or Daniel have anything they wanted to add? Yeah, actually, um, I so it's not surprising to me that horror directors will or did, uh, you know, or do. dabble in pornography because frankly uh, a lot of horror movies in particular the slasher movies are mm-hmm. exploitative in a pretty pointed way which is why these movies tend to get you know looked down upon especially things like um i don't know i watched a very classy movie for the podcast i watched uh, jason x of course only the best for this um mm-hmm. um but the thing is is that like in a movie like that it's called exploitation because you know you're here to see you're here to see you know uh, women expose themselves you're here to see you know, I mean, uh, one of the, one of the, um, um, which one is it? Uh, Friday the 13th is, is Freddy, right? Nightmare no, Friday the 13th is Jason. That's Nightmare the... is Freddy. Yeah, it's so annoying because that's a, that's a more mystical name. Anyway, and, J- and Jason's just, oh my God. Anyway, uh, whatever. There, there, there's one where there's a kid in a wheelchair, right? And Jason yeah. just, he, he takes his fucking giant arm and chucks his machete, hits this kid right in the head. And that wheelchair goes down every stair. and. It's glorious. You're here to I see. I believe that's Jason too. Is it? Right, is I it? believe that's two. Oh, that's right. That that's that's one of the Tom Savini ones, isn't it? I hence, I'm going to trust you on feels. that one. Yeah, yeah. The, the, that, that's the thing. Uh, Tom Savini, right? Like you're here to see the effects. You're here to see heads explode. You're here to see, you know, people die in surprising ways. You're here to laugh. You're here to. And the same goes for pornography. The really good porn directors. Uh, there, there's one. Um, she. It's a female director actually, which is probably why you know it's so interesting to watch. Her name is Sam No. Um, she goes by Mason sometimes. Uh, I, I think she changes her name occasionally, but. Um, you know, she knows how to film her her actresses. She knows how to make them walk down a hallway. She knows how to make them, you know, position themselves. She'll talk to them during the scene. Um, she knows how to keep them comfortable, and she knows how to how to frame things. And it sounds like a small thing, but you know, I mean, a lot of porn is shot in a very utilitarian way, where you know, you you watch um, multiple movies from the same company, and they're shooting it in the same way, same couch, same camera angle, right? It, <laughs> you, you're just changing out the girl. Like you, you even start to recognize the men. Like, oh, there's that guy with the the master shake tattoo on his leg, right? Right. Oh oh, the guy God. with the pirate beard. Okay. And and it's like, you, you know, you start to have deja vu, and you're like, oh no, no, I, I, you know. But like, you know, what I'm trying to say in a in a very roundabout way is that, um. In a similar way that, like, you know, my affinity for writing action and dialogue and things like that, I can take those things and apply this, the same skill set to writing erotic horror, as it were. I mean, you know, a a a a horror director probably knows how to, how to shoot, you know, two people fucking. Yeah. In, in a very exciting way. Kat, do you have any thoughts? Oh, so many, but I will be quick. 
Um, first, I don't think we can abandon the topic without once referencing that the French word for orgasm, le petit mm -hmm. mot, is the little death. If mm. we're talking about the link between eroticism yes. and horror. Yes. Um, and I had a really interesting conversation with an indie author this morning about the idea of horror romance and the sticking point of the word romance, because a lot of these types of books maybe aren't romance. They are more eroticism because there's a different line of the it's not healthy. It's not something that you would want to see happen in real life. Mm -hmm. So to classify it as such is in a way terrifying if you're mm -hmm. looking at these dynamics and calling it love and romance. But if you look at it and you call it horror and sensuality and eroticism, then there's a little bit of a clearer um, kind of line of what we're actually saying here, what we're looking to get out of the situation. Because I know I've love some uh some messed up pairings and dynamics but i wouldn't exactly want to come home to that mm. without you know strict guidelines which is how you get into the whole mess of what is and isn't kink and where those lines are for people who don't know what they're doing right right yeah i think it's interesting too another thing with the with porn and horror is that there's sort of a expendability aspect where like I think in particular with the female characters and the women in porn, it's like they sort of are this sort of expendable thing where they like can be, you know, and this is true of basically pretty much every character in a horror movie, but I think it has a, it's different with how it treats like the female characters of the genre. Cause we're like, well, we're going to get into this, but like, you know, if the female character is promiscuous, there's sort of this reputation that the horror genre is not going to be kind to them. They're going to be killed, you know, early on often they're, they're very disposable. And in porn, there's sort of that disposability, too, where it's like they're, you know, they can easily be swapped out with another girl. It's not really ever, like, about them. It's just their body. And that's kind of, you see that in horror, too, where it's like their body. There's somebody to be killed by the villain. And so that's kind of an interesting thing to note is that it's sort of, um, there's kind of a blasé attitude toward the humanity of, I think, specifically, you know, promiscuous um, or sexually active um female characters or women or afab people and so that's that's interesting note i'm also curious um so i we are among this is a uh, a very queer group um excluding myself but the rest of you are all queer i'm curious to know like thoughts that you have about the depiction of queerness and queer characters in horror which is another you know another heated topic um i want to start with mickey because you are non-binary and i'm interested in hearing your thoughts on not just um like sexuality but also gender as it appears in horror and if you feel like there are any like particularly good or bad examples of queer representation in horror um and just kind of your overall thoughts on how the genre portrays portrays queerness portrays a sexuality portrays gender etc yeah so um i think that for a long time somebody who is not cis so any sort of trans character has been seen as um especially horrific and shocking mm -hmm. and i think that one of the best examples um not like 
as in a good example, but a well-known yeah. example of a yeah. shocking transgender character is Buffalo Bill from right. uh, Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Of course. Uh, and so that person is demonized because they, uh, are, of course, are killing, but also because this person that appears to be uh, AMAB, assigned male at birth, is attempting mm -hmm. to be a woman and is doing anything possible to be seen as a woman. So far mm -hmm. as killing and making a woman suit. <laughs> <laughs> which is hard mm -hmm. to say <laughs> but yeah. i mean you could argue that uh if that character if they had gotten um if they had been raised in a society where it was okay to be trans then mm -hmm. maybe they wouldn't have gone so far you can always mm -hmm. make that mm -hmm. argument that um uh that that care is is important and like i feel like that's especially big news right now and something that's very sensitive right now because of uh, laws that were just passed in Alberta, um, mm -hmm. which is a province in Canada, mm -hmm. where uh, the lawmaker is actively attacking trans youth and making it so then they cannot transition and they cannot be seen as their true self. Like they can't use a different name or pronoun without uh their parents being notified and mm -hmm. um <clears throat> that's just something that i've been like really pissed off about recently so that's why i'm kind of getting off topic but mm -hmm. um that's yeah that's a good one to bring up because it is it is true we still you know i think that as much progress as we've made obviously we've also kind of not made any progress in a lot of ways and even maybe taken step backs in a lot of ways because now there's this whole backlash against trans people, you know, trans rights. And it's become, you know, so prolific and so kind of socially accepted a lot of the times, strangely. And, you know, people can be very anti-trans and still be very successful. And, you know, they'll face backlash, but it won't ultimately affect their bottom line. Um, And that's, you know, troubling. And I think that I think that where it's interesting also is that so much of horror, I think, revolves around this fear of the other and the outsider, yeah. the, you know, the, the person that's not in the, the, that doesn't, you know, follow the social norms that is, you know, this person that's like lurking on the outskirts of uh, the popular crowd, whatever, is other, is different, is alien, and might be monstrous, literally or figuratively or whatever. And so I think that that also comes up because a lot of people see queer people and specifically see trans people in that sort those sorts of terms where they're other, they're different, they're alien, they're foreign and they're strange and people are frightened by that. They're frightened by anything they perceive as being foreign, strange, different, even if that's, you know, completely disconnected from reality, if that's their perception, they're going to be scared of it. They're going to be resistant to it. And so with transphobia, I think it's interesting because I think a lot of that comes from the sphere of the other. And so it makes sense that there is a lot of transphobia and horror because, you know, that's the a lot of roots of horror too. And I think Buffalo Bill is a good example of exactly what you're talking about. And it's it's a shame. I think that um it would be great if we could see more like horror works that, you know, center on trans protagonists, trans heroes and heroines, and like just normalize that and make the villain 
not be attacking them for anything to do with their gender or sexuality, just for unrelated reasons, and they just happen to be trans. Like, that's kind of the representation we need, where it's very sort of casual, and it's, you know, the good characters that happen to be trans, and it's not this thing where they're being attacked for it, it's unrelated. Like, that's that's really, we need more of it, and we just don't have enough. And at this point, it's much more commonplace, especially with, you know, older works of horror, to see the kind of, I think another example, you know, being Psycho. Here's a character. Yes, Norman Bates. Yeah. Yes, as a woman, as his mother. He's also queer-coded to mm-hmm. holy hell. Like, he seems very much, um, and was, you know, played by a gay actor. Um, and so there's this queerness running through it where it's like, he seems like he, the character could be gay, and the character could be, you know, trans to some extent, uh, or gender nonconforming to some extent. And obviously he is villainous. He is other. He is, um, you know, crazy, for lack of a better word. He's somebody that, you know, is really not mentally doing well and is mentally unstable and is, you know, killing people. So, you know, it's but of course, you kind of expect that because it's, you know, an older movie. And that's, you know, you kind of just go in expecting those things a lot more, which is kind of the sad grim reality of it. And also, I think, you know, like with the Hayes Code back in the day, that didn't help things, you know, having to portray people that they first of all couldn't you know be explicit about somebody's sexuality so it was all kind of very like uh insinuations they couldn't even show a toilet in the movie yes they had to just insinuate somebody's sexuality or like they could never be explicit and if it was going to be portrayed in even a hint hint nudge nudge kind of way it would have to be portrayed as a negative thing and so they were, if somebody wanted to have been more progressive during that era, they were very limited in what they could do because of the Hayes Code. And so, and that I think is also tragic because there's so many great older films where, you know, if the Hayes Code didn't exist, you have to wonder, like, maybe this would have been different. Maybe this could have been more progressive. But, you know, it, was, it really imposed a lot of limitations and a lot of, and it's so strange to think about now how it was like basically saying, no, you have to be bigoted. You can't, we, we, we're not going to accept a movie that's not, you know, like encouraging bigotry and um, phobia of anybody that is different. Um, so it's, yeah, it's just, there's a lot there to kind of unpack. Um, Kat, did you have any thoughts? Oh, what a topic. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do... I mean, I don't consume a lot of older things, mm-hmm. but I have been reading a lot of newer things, mm-hmm. and I think we're going in a great direction. Mm-hmm. Um, if anyone wants to read some amazing queer horror, there's a whole there's a whole world out there. Um, I know I've got the interview with Eric LaRocca up on the magazine and they shouted out some authors uh, in particular looking at having more trans characters across all roles. Uh, Anyone who can stomach some body horror should read Manhunt. I mean, that book Mm. is gnarly, uh, but it it's that completely. I was uncomfortable the whole time reading it for every reason possible. And it was so well done. It just really makes you feel everything and think a lot of things through. And it um, takes some shots at some 
people who maybe are wealthy and successful with terrible views who haven't had enough flack for it. So we love to see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I think also an interesting point in that I feel like literature um, has, you know, I feel like you get more of that kind of good representation. There's like more of a wide range of stuff to read. Whereas I think because with film and with TV, it's so gate kept even more so mm-hmm. than literature. And there's so much status quo reinforcing within um, within film and TV and that sort of media versus literature where it's you have more more things to pick from. You could seek out independent authors and like you can send it, seek out independent films, too, but it's it's harder. It's not quite as accessible as like just going on Amazon, and just looking at, you know, whatever somebody self-published there. Like it's more. Mm-hmm more effort and so and there's so much um there i just feel like with like horror movies horror tv shows i feel like it's different in that i don't i think we've come far in some ways and that we're still exactly in the same place as we were in others whereas with novels and literature i think that i you just get so much more opportunities for representation and diversity in both people that are writing the stories and the people that are depicted in the stories and it's really refreshing that literature is going in that direction at the very least if, you know, even if film and TV are kind of um, sort of struggling. Like, I think a good example is like take Netflix, for for instance, you have like Orange is the New Black and it's like Laverne Cox. It's like, OK, great. Mm-hmm. And then you have Dave Chappelle on the same streaming service and it's like you know, the transphobic special. So it's like. I think a lot of these like uh, media outlets, even if they'll like throw a bone to people that want positive representation, they also will throw a bone to the people that are bigoted and don't want positive representation. I want their biases to be reinforced and want their prejudices to be reinforced. Um, and they're kind of not totally willing to commit fully to being uh, a place of positivity, inclusivity, whatever. And so that's kind of an interesting element too, but it's, it's, I think it's good that you mentioned books because that is a really good option for people that, you know, maybe aren't feeling represented by horror and want to feel more represented is like literature, seek out horror literature, because I think that you'll have a better chance of finding material that you connect with and that you feel seen by with literature than with the very sort of insular Hollywood media, you know, depictions. Yeah, I know. I mean, I think the last two there might have been one in between no the last three arcs i've read have all been sapphic romances in some way and two were horror and one was fantasy uh Mm. so it's definitely a lot more common one was also um very erotic and vampires and it was a really good time yeah Um, yeah so Mm -hmm. it's out there people are (laughs) Definitely writing it a lot more, which is awesome, especially because bigger publishers are picking it up and actually advertising it as such, which is pretty cool, too. It's not just like, a, oh, and by the way, if you read it, there might be gay people. <laughs> yeah. It's a selling point. Yeah, that's also always been basically true of literature, because like, as I was talking about, like with Hayes Code, film has had to like conform to these standards that are unreasonable and bigoted. Whereas literature is just, you know, even older classic works of literature has not had to conform to those things. And so they could talk about these taboo things, these kind of things that are were not talked about in media, in like film media and TV and things, um, in more of a candid way. It wasn't necessarily a positive way, but they could be candid. They could have characters that were explicitly queer versus, you know, this 
the kind of approach of film and TV back in the day where it had to all be suggested but never explicitly stated. So, yeah, it kind of makes sense that we've continued on, even though the Hayes Code has been abolished for quite some time now, that it hasn't totally, there's still remnants of it where there is still sort of this attitude of kind of not necessarily wanting to positively represent everybody or include everybody. Like, it's it makes sense that those remnants kind of linger. Um, and then, Daniel, did you have any thoughts? I did. I did. So, obviously, things are, I suppose, better. Um, things have come a long way. I would still... I would still gripe that it is still a very narrow focus. Um, you can find these things. That's true. You can find your, you know, your your gay, uh, you know, uh, um, gothic fantasies, dark fantasies, whatever. You can find these things, and they are out there, and they are good. But there's not a lot of it, and it's very hard to get your stuff out there in general. But I have a couple things here. Um, first off. Um, well, all right. First of all, I want to talk about bisexual characters or just queer characters in comic books specifically. I mean, you know, you want to talk about something that barely exists. I mean, there's like Electro from Spider-Man. He got molested. He got raped in jail and now he's bisexual. So that's thanks. Oh. Yeah, thanks, guys. Cool. You know, yeah. Back uh. when I see. Wait, so obviously uh, when you come out of the closet, the first person you come out to is yourself. Um um and i remember you know trying to find other characters that were bisexual and you find constantine and you're at first you're like cool you know magical con man who looks like sting very cool very interesting um he 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 has maybe one boyfriend in his 30 years of existing he's very and and that's not to say i mean like i you know i've mostly dated women <laughs> but mm -hmm. um he's not a very good example of representation you know mm -hmm. um it's it's barely there. Um, uh, Thor has a sister named Angela, who's an angel, and she has a trans girlfriend, which is, I mean, great, honestly, especially because it's Thor, this this uber uh, masculine character. But she's not a good character. Like, mm -hmm. I bought her comics out of you know just to support what they were doing. It was very badly done. Um, her girlfriend just, you know, just a. I don't want to dwell on it. Let's put it that way. Um, but I have a couple things here that I I want to talk about. Uh, the first one is kind of like, it's called Henry and Glenn Forever and Ever. And it's a delightful, wholesome, funny comic book about um, Henry Rollins and Glenn Danzig. They are in a, a wonderful gay relationship. Um, Glenn is drawn like a chubby Mickey Mouse. He has cats. <laughs> he... He's always uh, throwing temper tantrums, and his big teddy bear boyfriend, Henry Rollins. It, if you don't, you know, if anyone doesn't know who these are, these are gothic punk rockers. Mm -hmm. um, Glenn Danzig hates this book, by the way. He thinks it's terrible. He's very, <laughs> he takes himself way too seriously. He thinks he's the actual Prince of Darkness, which is, you know, he's he's up there uh, with an inverted cross and a a mm. a, a see through black shirt, singing about you know, I don't know how fire love is is the devil's plaything or whatever and you know he, he, you know people are thinking about the the picture of him with you know with two uh giant things of cat litter i mean he, he, you know he doesn't know how to laugh at himself and I, what i like about henry and glenn forever and ever is um you have you have them interacting with other rockers who are written straight like that you know there's one issue where um henry is looking for for uh, Glenn after he throws a temper tantrum because Henry took down Glenn's um, uh, 
altar to Satan. He's like, you know, it's it's an eyesore. You know, you're, you're never, you're never going to finish it. I'm taking it down. So Glenn, you know, throws a temper tantrum, runs away. And Henry finds Lemmy, you know, from um, Motorhead <laughs> drinking in a bar. And he's like, hey, you know, have you seen Glenn? And he's like, does he have a giant pair of tits? If so, no. And what, what's funny about that is Lemmy's, Lemmy is played straight. <laughs> he's a dirty, you know, strung out rocker. But these two are just ridiculous and sweet and kind to each other. And again, especially in the horror genre, uh, you know, your gay lovers are going to die most of the time. And, mm. you know, a, a lot of it is gay and, and queer artists reflecting on their own experiences. But mm-hmm. yeah, but my big uh, my centerpiece here, actually, um, I read um, I read volume five of The Sandman, uh, Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. It's called A mm-hmm. Game of You. And, you know, this this is one of my favorite books, one of my favorite comic books. It really transcends the medium in a lot of ways, but it's essentially about the the um, manif- the personification of dreams, Morpheus. Mm. And each book is very different, but this one in particular is pretty interesting. Um, it was the first time I had seen a transgender character in a book. And... It rubbed me the wrong way. It's from 1991. And Gaiman is a pretty progressive, wise, kind person. So I think he's outgrown this. But Mm -hmm. basically, uh, the main character's name is Barbie. And she is living in New York with, you know, her best friend, a trans girl named Wanda. And Wanda's very bubbly. She's very fun. And, you know... Barbie has this dream world that she used to go to when she was young. It's it's kind of like Narnia. She was the princess. There were talking animals. But there's this thing called the cuckoo that's destroying it. So her, her little dream friends start coming into the real world to try to enlist her help because she's the princess. And, mm-hmm. and basically what ends up happening is uh, you have all these characters in her apartment building. There are two lesbians, Foxglove and Hazel. Um... One of them is pregnant and is afraid to tell her partner. There's, of course, you know, Wanda. And then there's a centuries-old witch named Thessaly, right? So um, this creature that has taken over her little dream world is called the Cuckoo. And it's trying to, it decides to get a hold on Barbara. Uh, Barbara, uh, well, yeah, Barbie. Um, mm-hmm. it, it sends crows into the real world to try to infect all these people. One of them, of course, is Thessaly, who is a witch, and she's not she she doesn't like that. So she she goes in, she kills the guy who did it, who was working for the cuckoo, and she turns him into a into you know a, a totem basically, so she can talk to him. And she decides, you know what, fuck it, we're going into the dream, right? And this is this is this is where things fall apart for the book, in my opinion. She says, uh, I'm just gonna read the dialogue. Right, I'll need some menstrual blood, foxglove. That's you know that's the one who's not pregnant. Um, huh? Why me? Because you're menstruating, no one else here is. Hazel's pregnant, Barbie's sleeping, Wanda's a man, and I haven't menstruated for a long time. So then, you know, there's a bit more dialogue. And anyway, Wanda gets in her face and she's like, you know, I'm not a man. Um, I'm, I'm on hormones and all these things. And she's like, whatever. Like, Thessaly's very, like, very, um, what's the word? You know, dismissive. Mm, mm-hmm. And her attitude is that, see, the way I see it is, um, is if you wanted to be charitable to this depiction, this interaction between a wise, all-knowing character and a trans girl is the, 
she's kind of the ultimate boomer. She comes from like such an old world that gender norms are I mean, it's practically her religion. She's a witch. I mean, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a bit where so basically they they go into the um they they leave. They call down the moon. They force the triple goddess to send them into the dream. Um, and they, you know, they're like, you can't do that. It's very dangerous. But they leave Wanda behind, and she talks to the the guy, you know, the man that um, Thessaly killed, mm-hmm. who is able to speak. He's just a face nailed to the wall now. And you know, he's uh, Wanda's basically yelling at him, like, "Stop calling me a man." And he says, "It doesn't matter what you say. Um, you know, it's it, it's about chromosomes and all that stuff. The gods don't care about all that. So whatever. You have all this stuff, and it's you know." You get to the very, very end, and because because they call down the moon, it causes a, a you know a, a typhoon, which destroys the apartment building. And Wanda dies, of course. Or you know we can't have anything nice. Our trans girl dies, mm-hmm. and you see her at the end. Um, Barbie, having been saved by her friends, she's having a dream. She goes to Wanda's funeral, and you know there are all these weird Southern jerks who insist that um at the funeral. She has to call Barbie, uh, Barbie, uh, Wanda by her her birth name. And she just goes along with it because honestly, she just wants to get out of there. And she has a dream that she sees Wanda and Wanda is she's got curves and she has no Adam's apple. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'm not trans. Maybe like trans people like that. I, I don't know. But it's like it's like saying, like, you can't be a real woman unless you're born that way. That's the ideal. The hormones are a crutch. and. It's 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 a beautifully written book. It's pretty good, but I I it, it even when I was I don't know how old I was when I read this. I must have been sixteen. It bothered me, and you know I had trans friends back in school who. Uh, by the way, Wanda's last name is Man, so oh. you know, yeah, yeah, it's 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 dreadful and it's unfortunate, and no one talks about it. Um, the Sandman is kind of a sacred cow, and it's a sacred cow for a reason. It's a great book, but that particular thing really bothers me. You know, um, and frankly, I feel like a lot of people who don't know trans people, they don't care about the issue. They think it's just a social issue. They might read this and go, oh, that's nice. You know, she got to die and be a real girl, you know, and. I don't know that something like this would be written today, but I think by and large, people's people's perceptions. Aren't quite there in my oh-so-humble opinion. Mm, yeah, I mean, I think it might have been well-intentioned at the time, but... It, yeah, and I agree. I agree. I, I don't... Like, Neil Gaiman, I highly doubt he'll listen to us. I, you know, he's very wealthy, but if he ever yeah. does, I mean, I, I want to make it clear that I, 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 I don't just think that he moved past this. I do think he... Yeah, it was well-intentioned. I mean, again, yeah. 1991, I think he was as old as I am now. Um, He was young. Um, and here's the other thing. I mean, this was a Vertigo comics book. Uh, that's DC's imprint for edgy, dark, you know, sexy stories. So mm-hmm. that's the kind of thing you would see in a Vertigo book, you know. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, Kat and Mickey, have either of you two delved into Sandman or any of Gaiman's work in general? I have. I'm not done with Sandman. Um, I'm about halfway through the comics. Mm -hmm. I meant to finish last year, and then I didn't, which is how so many things go. Yeah. Um, And I've read... Wonderful book. 
Yeah, uh, basically what happened with Sandman was it kept showing up. Like, people would talk about it as a reference. They just assumed I knew. And I was like, guys, <laughs> I don't know how to tell you this. I yeah. haven't read those. And so I made it a point to try to fix that. And I'm working mm -hmm. on it. Um, and I've read, I mean, I love American Gods. Good Omens was also great. Neverwhere. If, you know, somehow you do hear this, Gaiman, give me book two, because you said it would happen eventually. It hasn't. I would like more. I have a signed um, copy of American Gods, actually. Okay, oh. well, you're amazing, and no one's surprised. I have American <laughs> Gods perfume, so um, <laughs> it's fine. Um, yeah. But yeah, I can't imagine it being, Yeah, I can't imagine it being like a an intentionally hateful thing. On no. Gaiman's part at all, no. um, but definitely a it was yeah it was nice I wasn't even born yet so so I yeah I, I don't I, I, and and I want to make it very clear again I'm not coming after Gaiman I'm more coming after the culture he was writing in because mm -hmm. the, yeah. Our yeah. artists do not create the world they merely reflect upon it I I. I I will say that we have come a long way. Like, there's a comic book called The Authority, where they had the first gay kiss in a comic book between Apollo and the Midnighter, who are basically like Batman and Superman. Um, and there was a giant censored bar over it. <laughs> you know? I mean, these days, these days, Loki and, you know, I'm not gender fluid. I'm just Loki. Um, but he's written gender fluid. He will literally just, like, shift from... Well, I say he, but... I don't know. It's I, see, see. There you go. I mean, that that just shows the bias. But anyway, um, like Loki will shift from male to female between panels. You know, like no bigish, and you know, yeah, that wasn't a thing. Like that wasn't a thing five years ago. Well, I'm gonna say 15 years ago because you know. Yeah, and but I think that your point is very valid. That like you know it was kind of the era more than like the author. Like the author might not have been intending any harm at all. But it was just the point when that this piece was written, that was the culture and that was normalized. And that, you know, it might have even seemed progressive at the time relatively to like straight audiences, cishet audiences. But, you know, now looking back on it, it's like, ooh, this is not uh, this is not great. Um, I think, though, that any kind of work that at least recognizes the humanity of a trans character if it's older, like at least that's a step in the right direction. Obviously now we should be doing better than that. But if it's an older piece, it's like, at least that's something. You, right. Which you do get, but I mean, like, that's like looking at Ivanhoe and being like, Oh, the Jew isn't always conniving people, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. 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 It's not, it's not great, but at least, um, at least he might've been well-intentioned for all the, the game and fans out of there. We have to assume he was, I think that, you know, we don't have anything to, I mean, other... again, again, I'm a fan of this. I, I, yeah. I, Sandman is one of those things I wish I had written. So, you know, right. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, I think I also was thinking about um, how queerness comes up and sex, sexuality, um, eroticism comes up in horror comedies. Specifically, I was thinking about Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, oh yes the dearly beloved um which i think is an interesting example because it has a very like casual attitude toward depicting queerness which is great although it does like i mean pretty much every character in that movie is um maybe not what you would call a great person <laughs> so like it's interesting because it's casual. It doesn't make a big deal out of it. And that's really 
really cool, especially for the era in which it came out. But also, and also I think that the fact that like Frankenfurter as an example, very cool, like exciting character. Like that's a character that like you want to be like, because he's just like has such swagger, very like, very cool guy. And I'm referring to him, but he just because everybody in the movie does. I don't know. I think if it was made down nowadays, they might have him be like non-binary or and go by them. But in the movie, there, he goes, there like, actually was. There, there was a remake of the Rocky. Oh right, show. yeah, which I didn't, I didn't, yeah, right. I didn't. Yeah, watch that. where uh, Frankenfurter was played by Laverne Cox. Right. Yes, I forgot about that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's interesting queer representation. Um, I don't know about the remake, but speaking to the original, I do like that. Um, the gender identity and the sexuality of the characters is presented as just kind of very matter of fact and it's just like this is what these characters are and that's just you know who they are and just like deal with it and that's great and i think frankenfurter is this very cool character that you can kind of like if you ignore like the murderous stuff and just focus on like the fact that frankenfurter is glamorous as hell and looks amazing and is cool as hell and dope as hell you can easily see somebody that's like um aspirational in those ways but then you focus on the murder stuff and then maybe that goes out the window. <laughs> he's not, he doesn't have the best uh, personality in a lot of ways. But um, so there's that. And I think that it's an interesting I do, But even like, I don't know, there's there's things like the, the way that kind of like bisexuality is presented in that work. Or Franken character is a character that, you know, kind of gets with everybody regardless of um gender See, I, fi- I find that very offensive though like you yeah know, i was about to say i was about to say it's not good representation of bisexual right. people because also like he I don't i'm know, not he... a fan i'm not a fan of the rocky horror picture show i do not like it it is really it is, that's interesting it is it is gauche it is over the top it, not in a good way and it's made to make fucking straight people giggle like i don't i know yeah. a lot of gay people for them it's like oh I feel seen and that's that's cool that's great and I yeah. love that but I don't know I I can't let go of what it is and I don't go for that death of the author stuff necessarily. Yeah, I don't I think that's entirely fair because I was about to say like having Frankenfurter like seduce Brad and there's this sort of insinuation that Brad would not be, you know, engaging in this behavior if he hadn't been seduced mm-hmm. by this um transgressive figure that is kind of, you know, has sort of no kind of real morality. Um, and it's just, you know, willing to fuck anybody. Like there's I think that the bisexual representation, it's cool that there is bisexual representation, but that's kind of where it begins and ends because I don't think it's good bisexual representation. I do think there's that sort of predatory aspect, which is really problematic and bad. There's the sort of like somebody can kind of just, you know, decide to be bisexual on a whim. There's that aspect, which is, you know, really bad. So there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of problematic stuff in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And, um, but it is, it's interesting in that it's so willing to, like, go to these, um, what were very taboo at the time. I think also, like, you know, Riff Raff is, like, an interesting character in that he's kind of, there's sort of a, like, a, a sexual tension between Riff Raff and Frankenfurter, I think. But also Riff Raff is in an incestuous like romance with his sister magenta so like it's it's also interesting in that regard because it's like 
are we meant to think that these things are equal? Because they're both kind of portrayed with the same level of casualness where like somebody being in an incestuous relationship with their sister is on the same level as, you know, Frankenfurter. Are we meant to think that or are we not meant to think that? There's kind of a lot of questions that the movie asks that don't necessarily have hard and fast answers, but I can definitely see how it would leave a bitter taste in someone's mouth. Obviously, it is very popular with a lot of queer people, but like I can get why certain other queer people would find it offensive because it's... It def and it definitely does kind of treat a lot of these things in sort of this light, jokey manner, too. Like, it's a matter of fact with them, but also, you know, the movie's a comedy. And so it's going to present these things in this sort of comedic way and not take itself seriously or take its character seriously, necessarily. Um, so I really, honestly, I really like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I really fuck with the music from it. It's a guilty pleasure of mine. But I do think in terms of representation, it's um, it's nice that it was very casual about it, but also... I would say that's kind of where my comments end. Um, what about uh, you, Kat and Mickey? Did you have any thoughts on Rocky Horror? I also didn't like it. Um, I oh. went as a tiny, I was so small. I was a newly released from a Baptist house college student <laughs> dragged to Rocky Horror and made to stand in front of everyone and loudly proclaim that I was a virgin because it was my first time going oh to Rocky gosh. Horror. And oh then, no, oh, I mean, and they, they made all the Rocky virgins fake an orgasm on stage. I mean, oh, I, no. Oh, no, I'm not. This this is I had the most crazy experience and I was I don't even think I was 19 yet. I was what? so like Holy I was it was a whole experience and I was just so uncomfortable the whole time because I was like everybody around me is really into this. They're having fun, like I'm cool too. I wanna belong with these people, but this is not it for me. And it yeah. was just over the top no boundaries at all and yeah. i mean everyone who knew it and like that was their scene maybe they didn't have as sheltered of an upbringing could just have moved past what it was and was just having fun but oh man it put a it put a taste in my mouth and i've never watched it again <laughs> yeah well that's entirely fair that sounds honestly kind of traumatic i think also one of the things for me is that like i've actually never seen it in person and i do think that kind of affects one's you know perception of it enjoyment of it whatever the relationship to it is that they were introduced to it mm -hmm. through like a midnight screening where they go in costume versus if they just watched it and i was somebody that I was I just watched it as a teenager for the first time um got really really into it um I, I you know I was a teenager that was a weird homeschooler with no friends so I just watched it by myself just late one night and it was like to me kind of spellbinding and like enchanting and I was like wow this is really like I don't know I just it connected with me for whatever reason but I've never to this day actually gone to even though like and it's really sad because I'm in San Francisco there's plenty of midnight screenings. I've still never gone to one. You know, so, I think I think I think that would be much different because, like, you know, the movie. I never fucking finished it. I was like, this is not my my jam. I don't want anything to do with this abhorrent <laughs> shit, this lowbrow garbage. Um, but basically, um, here's the thing. Um, you see it live. You're probably going to be seeing queer people performing it, and that's mm. a different context. That's totally different. Yeah. You know, yeah. now yeah. it's yeah, it's not a minstrel show for gay people. You know. Yeah. Yes, I think that's very true. Mickey, did you have any thoughts? <laughs> I mean, after hearing everything that Daniel just said, <laughs> I feel awful for saying that I enjoyed this movie. Yeah, well, um, I'm with you on it. <laughs> you got one I other mean, person. 
<laughs> we're not friends anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I don't think that it's good representation, but I think it's one hell yeah. of a show, if that's something. Yeah. Yeah, um, just like cats. I, I think that the <laughs> <laughs> I think that the movie kind of plays on the shocking ridiculousness of ta of taboo in mm. many many forms. So um, we're met with like our main characters are two of the most white bread people in the world. Yes. Um, yes. And so then when they encounter literally anything, they are going to be shocked, and shock yeah. is hilarious. And I think that they are so white bread because you you are able to say, oh, I know somebody like that, or I'm, I'm like that in some ways. Like they're very, they're just blank canvases for you to project yourself onto. So then you can watch the show and be uh, enthralled into the craziness because mm -hmm. these people are not from here. The first person that you meet is Frankenfurter, who mm -hmm. uh, looks like a man and is dressed like a woman. Yeah. And uh, he is creating a man, which is a taboo against creation, taboo against God, very Frankenstein. Um, he's fucking everybody's sexuality, promiscuity is normal. It is encouraged. Um, there's the famous pool scene in the end where everybody's dressed up and it's, it's very orgy-like. Yes. There's the taboo of the incestuous relationship. It's just, it's nothing but like cheating on your, yeah. your newlyweds. Uh, yes. Um, the, oh, Brad and I'm forgetting the, Anna? the wife's name. Janet. Angel Damn it, Angelina. Janet. Damn it, Janet. Uh, Janet fucking Rocky and Brad fucking uh, Frankenfurter. Yeah. Like everybody is just doing the most taboo and, um, there's also, I mean, the not so great part is this idea that this white bread couple can be um, sullied by these people mm -hmm. who are very queer presenting. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I think that the difference is, like Daniel was saying, is when it's one of those shadow play, uh, like live viewings where everybody has like the rice to throw and everyone has their newspapers and they have their mm -hmm. toast to throw up into the air when they say a toast. And mm -hmm. um, I personally have never done this, but my mom would, would tell me about it back when I was very, very young and just say how much of a hoot and a holler it was because she had so much fun doing it and she would go to midnight viewings all the time um, when she was younger. And mm -hmm. so... Um, I do have a fondness for this film. I think that it's very, very funny. I think the songs are great. Um, the reboot was a little lackluster, but I also love Laverne Cox, so I will watch it for her. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yeah, so I, I actually really, really enjoy the film. Um, yeah. It's not good representation, yeah. of course. If it's yeah. queer people doing the characters, then it's a bit better. But, mm -hmm. I mean... They are just making fun of taboos. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really a good way to put it. That's kind of like my feelings about it too, I would say. I find it very fun. I love campy stuff, so I'm a sucker for it right off the bat just by virtue of the outrageousness and the over-the-topness of it all and ridiculousness. But yeah, is it good representation? No, but I also think that 
there is something to be said though where like i do think one of the reasons why queer audiences connected with it in addition to the fact that it's it's camp and it is representation you know maybe not good one but like there's something to be said about bad representation that's fun representation so when you're from a marginalized community and there's so much pressure on you to behave well and to be an example and to like make you know the straights not afraid of you and to like put everyone around you at unities and convince them all that you're not other you're just a normal regular person that happens to be you know trans happens to be you know gay bisexual whatever i think that when you are have when you have that pressure on you so much, it's kind of nice to just sort of let all that go and to get mm. to celebrate a ridiculous, frothy character that doesn't, you know, doesn't obey any of those rules, isn't trying to impress straight people, isn't trying to make straight people comfortable, isn't trying to be this fantastic person, this role model, whatever. And I think that can kind of be freeing in a way. And I think that might be another reason why it has connected with queer audiences, even though the representation isn't stellar by any means. You know, I put down Glenn or Glenda, which is, I, I'm a big fan of Edward D. Jr. Do we know who that is? Um, no. Yeah. Well, do I? I think I do, but I'm. I'm. I mean, I'm flawed. sure you do. You, like, you seem to. You know, you seem to like be on my wavelength. But like, what's it called? Um. Well, there's a Tim Burton movie called Edward. Has anyone seen that? Yeah, I'm. Yeah, that's what I was. That's who I thought you were talking about. But I wasn't sure if this was oh, a different one. That is who I'm talking about. Now that movie is delightful. It's my favorite play of the artist movie. But uh. He was basically a, a really bad filmmaker. He never had a budget. He never really knew what he was yeah. doing. Um, he made um, a lot of really great movies called Plan 9 from Outer Space, uh, Bride of the Monster, yeah. and his right. masterpiece, Glenn or Glenda. Mm -hmm. Glenn, yeah, Glenn or Glenda, where basically uh, he liked, so he had a thing where he liked to wear his girlfriend's Argyle sweater. Um, mm. And he, I mean, he liked wearing women's clothing in general, but this movie was essentially an exploitation movie, but because he he himself was a crossdresser, it's made in this way that's it's so human and sad because it's bad, and a lot there's a there's there's a voiceover that's essentially begging you to accept people that like to dress in girls' clothing. Um, mm. he has this 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 uh this sequence where he has people speaking dismissively if the lord wanted us to be boys we would have been born boys and he's like you know at, at one time people didn't accept cars mm. they i don't like cars they scare the horses you know right. and like you laugh at it because you know honestly the the filmmaking is very amateurish but it, I can't help but feel pity for him because, frankly, I mean, this fucker was running around in the fifties, you know, and he wasn't—he uh, wasn't James Whale with all that swagger. I mean, you know, James Whale was an out gay man at a time when—I mean, that was the thirties for fuck's sake. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, Glenn or Glenn is very interesting because it's not just—you know—Edward doesn't just walk around in women's clothing and beg people to accept him. He has mm -hmm. Bela Lugosi just mm -hmm. randomly in the movie because he was friends with him. And for anyone mm -hmm. who doesn't know, Bela Lugosi famously played Dracula in 1930. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he defined the role forever. I mean, everyone knows children of the night, what music they make, right? Yeah. Bela Lugosi at the, at the time was, you know, in the throes of heroin addiction. So, I don't know, somehow he made friends with this schlockmeister who put him in everything <laughs> he could. And in Glen or Glenda, he's just this weird puppet master that hates the world and hates humanity. And he keeps reciting puppy dog tales, you know, um, I can't remember what it is. It's like 
you know, like girls are made of um, sugar and spice and everything nice, and boys are made of puppy dog tails, and it, it's some vile thing. And they keep mm. reciting it, and at one point the devil shows up, and it's a bit of a mindfuck. It's very art house, mm. but it's mm. for something so old and something so impassioned. I mean, it is an exploitation movie, but it comes from a place of deep sadness. The other thing I wanted to touch on was I do think that at the end of the day, a lot of queer media tends to be, tends to have this edge of sadness, repression, and finally violence. Mm. You know, so we discussed how the, how horror is, um, has this kind of layer of eroticism kind of baked in, but then there's also the kind of puritanical attitude within the genre and how it treats promiscuity, uh, especially among the female characters of Horde and kind of the way that it tends to punish promiscuous female characters, which I think is an interesting, an interesting topic. And so we have a lot of like virginal final girls and we have a lot of dead sluts is what I put in my notes here. So I'm just going to say it, dead sluts. We have dead sluts and virginal final girls in a lot of horror movies. And it's um, kind of a depressing fact of the horror genre. That if a female character is, you know, outwardly flirtatious, sexual, whatever, you know, it seems like that character is more likely to get killed by the villain than the virginal, you know, protagonist. Um, and it's unfortunate and it's kind of strange. It's 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 odd that, that the horror genre of all things can be conservative in that way when you don't really tend to think of the horror genre as conservative. And yet it can uphold a lot of kind of existing societal norms rather than challenging them. I mean, it could do one or the other, but a lot of times it will just kind of stick to the status quo in that way, which is um, a bit bleak, but that is a fact of the fact of the genre. And so I'm curious about what thoughts any of you guys have to share. Uh, Mickey, not to pick on you because you did say you're feeling a little tired, but do you want to start things off? Yeah, definitely. So mm -hmm. um, I actually want to talk about the uh how female characters are kind of goaded into action by the use of sexual violence because mm -hmm. kind of the only time that we see female quote empowerment unquote mm -hmm. is when they've gone through the worst acts of vulnerability and powerlessness which then drives them to enact revenge and take away the power of her perpetrator i feel like mm -hmm. that's seen a lot uh in horror movies especially like that is the way that a woman can garner that power to do something monstrous, like kill, take a life, is when mm -hmm. something has been irrevocably changed or broken within her. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that that is usually when we see a woman act out in in films. Um, Oh, I have so much I could talk about on this topic because Final Girls is kind of my thing. Yeah. Yeah, you um, that. <laughs> um, I am going to take the interesting standpoint and say it's not conservative, actually. Mm. That the reason that there are the rules in horror that there are is because there aren't any in life. And mm. so... It is a way to deal with these horrific experiences with a way to survive because 
the cruelty experienced in life is so random and so ubiquitous you can never really feel safe a lot of the time and at least in horror here is a spot where you can you do you know the rules are what they are but they are changing i will say i have seen them change i've seen them flipped on their head but mm. it's a comfort to know that at least somewhere there's a reason and you can win because mm. so much else you you can't you don't have a fighting chance you don't have a win condition where you're the person who gets to defeat the evil in the end because slashers can only be taken down by final girls you don't you don't get and there's often not justice and i think the slasher deals a lot with justice both in that a lot of the slashers were wronged and then they're perpetuating that hurt onto others and it is that cycle of violence and i think it's this really incredible cyclical commentary on a lot of shit we all deal with in day-to-day -day life and the rules exist to try to make any sense of it and provide a way to experience it with a catharsis that you don't get watching the news damn bro that's cool. some big picture shit <laughs> this is yeah. my shit I, <laughs> I love it so much yeah, I think that's a great take. Anything you wanted to add about that, Mickey? Um, just the idea that a woman's promiscuity has always been demonized mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. as long as stories have been told, basically. Um, mm -hmm. Or rather, ever since patriarchy has been around. Mm -hmm. And uh, the idea that a woman expressing sexuality is something to be demonized and something to be punished and mm -hmm. it is punished often in horror media uh the most promiscuous girl is always going to be the first girl to be killed usually with her tits out <laughs> and it's this idea that like um you know like if somebody is going to be very pr promiscuous uh, promiscuous mm -hmm. then they are going to be the one to be uh killed first and um <laughs> Oh, brain! Give me a second. I like in Jason X where they, you know, they're in space and they they found Jason and they're like, "Cool, it's Jason. He's dead. Awesome." And then like, you know, the the guy touches the girl and she's, you know, she, she gets into a nice position, right? And then the minute the boy touches her, Jason just sits right the fuck up, man. He's like, "Whoop, up, up! You did it. I'm back." Yeah. Yeah. Jason, the biggest cock block. Um, I, mean, I mean, they usually get it in, but you know, <laughs> it's normally after that they die. Actually, yeah, oh. yeah. That's you true. can orgasm, but it'll be the last one ever. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. What a way to go, man! You know. Yeah, that's true. Oh, and my my brain uh, fired correctly for a moment. I'm gonna take take yes. this. Um, you know, like a woman can be a part of a horror movie um, if she's like good to look at, if she's like, like promiscuous coded as in like scantily clad, sexy, yes. hot, but she can't enact on those things. Yes. Or else she will then be deemed mm -hmm. the first girl, like she mm -hmm. will be killed. And so it's almost like this, this tantalizing uh, middle ground that 
these women characters have to like dance on and it's so difficult to capture the the gaze long enough to retain any form of interest Mm. without sullying that interest it's kind of like that disposed like this disposability we were talking about earlier of like you know you're you're chasing the girl but then once she puts out it's like oh well i already know this song and dance i'm not i don't why should i chase you anymore Mm. and um oh god you got what you wanted right exactly yeah and so i think that um sexuality is something that is played with a lot in horror just because it's something to be frowned upon but it's also something that draws people into seats (laughs) <laughs> like sex cells mm-hmm. of course yeah 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 that's a that's a really good point and very well said um so then i guess it might be time to delve into the dark origins of valentine's day if we are all prepared yes. for it yes this is the one thing i studied and <laughs> yeah. i prepared for yes <laughs> prepared um would you like <laughs> or daniel would you like to start either one of you feeling uh up for the task of kicking things off and sharing with the class what you know about this topic i make 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 you uh, can take it oh hell yeah, yeah. great all right let's get into it mm-hmm. so ancient rome setting mm-hmm. the scene <laughs> the feast of Lupercalia, if that's how you say it. I'm going yep. to say it that way for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Daniel. Yeah. So, to celebrate this feast, it was from the 13th to the 15th, uh, and it was all about trying to promote, promote fertility. And so, um, men would sacrifice goats and dogs, and they would, uh, like, women would line up nude and they would whip the women with the hides because those were in their eyes very uh fertile animals they could have many many children and um also they would play a little game of you know keys in a bowl but ancient rome style so it was just names in a bowl and men and women would randomly be coupled to have sex during the entire feast and sometimes connections would be made and they, they would keep on hooking up after the feast but they would just go crazy in there. <laughs> Fast forward to the fifth century. We got the we got Catholics. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> the Catholic Pope um, decided that he wanted to combine the feast day of Lupercalia with the feast day of Saint Valentine, uh, who his feast day is on the fourteenth. And so he wanted to replace the pagan ritual of Lupercalia uh, but with the feast day of St. Valentine. So then we have Valentine's Day. And mm-hmm. it's still a feast and still a day of fertility and love, but it's a little bit less sacrificial, a little less sexy, like actual, yeah. like active sexy. Yeah. It's still like sending love. Yeah. And then I wanted to talk about St. Valentine because there's actually like, two dudes named valentine that this saint could be named after which is insane yeah i know it's funny there like i found three but the third one didn't have any stories attested to him it was just like man so yeah (laughs) Uh, it's a dude it's a dude named valentine yeah very weird yeah (laughs) (laughs) and so this the patron saint uh uh valentine he's the saint of married couples love 
epilepsy, and beekeepers. Wow, that is a weird assortment of things. <laughs> oh, all patron saints got weird assortments, yeah. and I love it. <laughs> sometimes they'll even, like, take a saint and then, like, hundreds, thousands of years later just be like, you know what? I'm going to make you the patron saint of blank because I feel like you fit that. Like, I could see the bee. Patronate. I could see the bee thing. I mean, you know, bees harvest flowers. Flowers are the female yes. parts of tree. You know, eh. and honey works. is yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you squint, you see it. I, you know. And also, Cupid is associated with bees and honey because of a story he was a part. Oh, of. Oh, oh my God! I didn't even realize. That's right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Cool. Yup. Good job. Like, uh. The patroness saint of photography came literally, like, I think 1,200 years before photography was invented. Wow. Uh, she's, I forget her name, forgive me, patroness saint, but uh, her whole deal is that she gave Jesus a cloth to wipe his face while he was walking with the cross. Oh, it's Veronica. And Yeah. Yeah, yeah patroness saint Veronica. Thanks, Anne Rice. <laughs> yeah (laughs) (laughs) and um he wiped his face and then gave the cloth back to her and it was like a perfect recreation of his face on the cloth Mm -hmm. and uh the painting of her is her holding it up like with a shocked face like it's a very youtube thumbnail (laughs) like (gasps) what is it's jesus's face and so now she's the patroness saint of photography and it's fantastic wow um i did not know patron saint of that interesting yeah i wasn't aware of that either it's a shame the shroud of turin is a is a you know is a fake but oh well (laughs) (laughs) i know it's like I wish that patron saints weren't so intertwined with the Catholic right. Church because I just love the idea of all these like minor, minor deities yeah. just kind of chilling and being yeah, like, and that, hey, if you want to take good photos, right. pray to Veronica. Yeah. And that's yeah. all they really are, aren't they? Like a lot, of, I know a lot of the early saints were just like, they were taking, you know, narratives from the Norse mythology and so on and ascribing them to martyrs, right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And uh it's just that they went through a martyrdom and that they were associated with uh Christianity or Catholicism. Right. So then because they went through a martyr, they are then elated or elevated rather to saintdom. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. So Saint Valentine was martyred. He was uh beheaded because uh he went against emperor claudius gothicus mm-hmm. slay of rome <laughs> coolest name ever by the way yeah. i wish that, that was like my drag name <laughs> that's awesome yeah yes and so saint valentine was performing christian weddings for couples and mr gothicus was not very happy about that. because when the men were married they no longer had to serve in claudius's army because they were Christians and it was a pagan army. Mm-hmm. And so uh Saint Valentine was beaten with rods and then beheaded <laughs> before Claudius. Mm. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And that was in the third century. Yeah. T points are made. <laughs> and uh the last thing I wanted to talk about, it was just like a question I had of like, well, where did the baby come from? Like we, whenever I see like a Valentine's Day card, yes. Oh, I also want to talk about Valentine's Day cards. Where did the little angel baby with the bow and arrow? What's that about? Like, I guess fertility, but like, why is it a little cherub? 
Yeah. Um, for the older Cupid that's like in a relationship with Psyche and it's a whole thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Eros. All I could find was that like it was um, essentially something that popped up, you know, when when uh, greeting cards became a thing for the most part. Because like um, uh, the the tiny angels are called Pudi. It's a... um, it's a trope in Italian sculpture of making time because actual cherubs and obviously you guys all know this and actual cherubs are horrific monsters that uh, ride around in divine chariots and have like foreheads, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. They're not, they're not naked little babies that, you know, pee and uh, you know, whatever, whatever it is that they do. I don't, I'm thinking of Bacchus anyway. Um, but yeah, no, um, it, it, they were a common fixture in churches and i don't know gothic architecture and mm-hmm. um yeah they're cute i i i really don't it, it is enigmatic i don't understand why cupid would you know because eros er- eros who is of course the greek you know counterpart to cupid he was not a tiny naked baby he was a an archer you know he was a babe he was a yeah. sexy guy yeah, exactly. <laughs> no it's true yeah totally yeah Mm-hmm. So I actually have a little bit of tea on this, and I know Ooh. why he's now a little baby boy. Cool. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the original Cupid was the Greek god Eros, mm-hmm. who is the son of Aphrodite, mm-hmm. and his power is that he could make anybody fall into love or infatuation or obsession, and he would do that to cause mayhem. He did it for nefarious purposes. Mm-hmm. Um. He has been described by artists as invincible in battle. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he would cause people to fall in love in the hopes of them, like, being led to their own misfortune. Because he would even do it to, like, the gods and to mortals. He's a trickster. And totally a trickster. And people really feared him because he was sexual. Mm -hmm. He was powerful. He was in control. Like nobody could defy him because if he hit you with that arrow or if he just said like, sorry, you are now in love with an evil person. I hope your life sucks. Mm -hmm. Like you would do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But as women's status fell in Athens, uh, the story of Eros changed as well because they were linking it more with Aphrodite. Mm -hmm. They were saying that Eros could only act on his mother's wishes instead of his own chaotic impulses. Mm -hmm. And uh, mortals had no reason to fear him because he was no longer in control and they kept infantilizing him. Like, oh, you're just a mama's boy. You just do what Aphrodite tells you. And Aphrodite's just a woman. Sorry, love goddess, but Mm -hmm. yeah. So people would say. And so... uh, they would do that to like diffuse his apparent power. And this change especially took place when the Romans adapted Eros to Cupid. And they just like kept making him like in every iteration of art, like younger and chubbier and cuter. And now he's just like a little baby boy who follows his mother wishes and like blessings to make people fall in love and only does it for good reason. Yeah, and so that's why Cupid has been infantilized so much. He used Mm -hmm. to be like absolutely sexy, big, strong man, could do anything. Everybody feared and respected him, and now he's just a 
baby in diapers, which sucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they nerfed them. Yeah. That is an awesome. For that sure. Is an awesome analysis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One yeah. last thing I wanted to mention is Valentine's Day cards. Mm -hmm. And I just read it's not horror horror related at all. I just thought it was really interesting. Mm -hmm. It went down the same rabbit hole as like, well, why are like little why is Cupid a little baby boy on Valentine's Day card? Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about how Valentine's Day cards became the biggest thing like ever. In back in the 1850s, Congress po voted to decrease the cost of postage, try and stop the the um the privatizing of the postal service. Uh and then like before that the industrial revolution happened. So factory made cards were even more possible. And so now that we could make a lot of cards and postage was cheaper. So sending and receiving mail was like really convenient for everybody. Then this little company called Hallmark became a thing in 1913. And by 1916, they were mass producing Valentine's Day cards, which were now very easy to send all around the world. Mm, wow. And that's the history. Damn, that's I did. I did some homework. Okay, yeah. I get like a C plus this episode. Yeah, no, you I'm did saying a, a little higher than that. For sure. <laughs> no, <you're not. laughs> I give you an A. Great job. Um, that's really fascinating, and yeah, I'm really glad you did your did your digging, and uh, that we got to we got to learn. Daniel, I know you also did some research on the topic. Anything else you'd like to add or throw in there? You know, it's all kind of minor next to Mickey's. Uh prowess here but i will say that um chaucer was probably yeah and here? shakespeare yeah chaucer and shakespeare popularized valentine's day you know huge yeah and people kind of associated that particular time of the year the month with fertility because they you know during the medieval era they believed that that's when birds were courting and I, I guess I guess oh. they heard the song "Bird Singing." I don't really know or care, but got a little frisky. Yeah, I mean, you know, getting some lovey time, right? <laughs> some bird lovey time, you know. Yeah. yeah. Squeezing yeah. cloacas yeah. together as you do, but um, no, um. Yeah. <laughs> so I I've always been kind of fascinated by the heart because it does not look like a heart. Um, I know the Catholic Church claims that. They created the heart because of that um that burning heart thing they 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 put around I don't know um but it's actually a lot older than that um obviously this is not the first heart um but uh the oldest manuscript we have that depicts a man giving a heart shaped something to a you know his his lover is from twelve fifty it's a French manuscript. Um, it's thought that it was originally actually a rendering of male genitalia. Mm. Um, oh. For a while, it was drawn upside down. So, you know. <laughs> I always thought it was um, supposed to be like a butt. Yeah, that's, po that's possible too. They're both round, right? They both have their curves, mm. don't they? <laughs> um, but it's, it's not hard to see, you know, the, you know, I don't know the two testes hanging in a sack, but it, it could be could be a butt. I mean, that's very possible. You know, I can yeah. see. Anything yeah, you're on your knees. Um, 
Saint Valentine would also give cut out paper hearts to the uh, people he would marry. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, that was a little fun little tidbit. Cool. Oh, that's cool. Like yeah. That. Mickey really is like now the expert on Valentine. I love that. No, no, no. See, see, see when I when I was reading this, I was it's like, I was like, this is Mickey's domain. I'm gonna, I'm gonna fill up three pages, and that's awesome. You see, you see Saint, and you're like, oh, that's Mickey. Fucked. Mickey's getting oh, this. Fuck. <laughs> Back it in, boys. Yeah. Back it in. <laughs> Let me talk about my special interest. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed our Villainous Valentine's episode and that you'll come back for more next month. In the meantime, you can follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or on Instagram at monstrous underscore fam. You can also support the show by rating it and or leaving a positive review, which would be very kind and much appreciated. Until next time, stay monstrous.